0: Hello everyone and welcome back to yet another episode of Wild Messy Infinite Love. My name is Eric Snader aka Brother Snades and I am coming at you with the 30th installment of the Wild Messy Infinite Love podcast. Big 3-0 right here. (laughs) Um, So today I am bringing you a particularly special podcast to me because it is the beginning of a four-part podcast that I am so wildly excited to share with you. As many of you know, I have been working on my master's level thesis paper pretty much this entire year, and my my thesis paper is on the topic of Eschatology and ecotheology, and how those two theological narratives and discourses uh, inform proper care of creation, proper care of the planet, planet particularly in light of climate change. So my thesis is complete. My thesis has been submitted. I got an A on it. Woo! party for Eric um, so my thesis is submitted and my thesis was actually accepted as a presentation for the 10th annual international religion and society conference which is absolutely insane to me that my work is something that is uh something that other people want to find out more about this is something that's really quite new to me, the fact that I'm able to write something down and people actually want to consume it. People actually want to listen to what I have to say, which is crazy wild to me. Uh, but in going through the process of presenting that material for this conference, I've also come to the conclusion that I want to share this information with you, my podcast listeners, as well. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. I have a four-part series lined up. In part one, we are going to be talking about eschatology. That's today's episode. Part two will be ecotheology. Part three will be digging into climate change and what's going on with climate change and where climate change is coming from and all that good stuff. Communion, consumption, all that all that kind of stuff. And then part four is going to be more of a practical podcast where we're going to talk about sort of the practical steps that we need to be taking to be living eschatologically and eco-theologically in the face of climate change. So that's sort of The next four weeks of the podcast, I'm going to be writing and releasing them every single week at the same time. So, next Monday, part two will be coming out. So, you can be looking forward to um, learning that. But that's sort of the path that I'm going to be taking over the next couple weeks with the podcast. I do have a couple interviews lined up, which I'm really excited to um, get underway and to release after this series is done. So, Be sure to stay tuned for that. Also, if you've been digging any of the stuff that I've been laying down over the past couple weeks as we've been stuck in our houses in quarantine, please let me know. I know in particular last week's conversation with Austin, while I absolutely loved that, I absolutely adore the man. I know that he was already getting some feedback from some people that he's really close to about questions about... What it, what it was that we were talking about with the demerge system, talking about economics, talking about a shift in our lens in terms of how we view money and wealth and all that kind of stuff. So if you have any questions, if you have feedback, please feel free to let me know, um, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. It's all at Brother Snade. You can find me at those handles. Um, but I would love to hear from you. I would love to engage with you further. Um, it's really great that I get to record this podcast. It's really great that I have social media that I kind of sort of manage and use, kind of. Uh, but my real passion is to be engaging with you one-on-one. My real passion is to be helping to foster healthy communication, healthy exploration, healthy discovery of who we are at our deepest core, how we interact with our communities, and ultimately how we interact with our world. So please, please, please reach out to me. I would love to hear from you, even if it's saying, hey, I didn't really get what you were talking about. I have questions. I'm more than happy to engage with you on any sort of level. So please feel free to let me know. But in the meantime, I've been talking a lot. So... Episode 30, Part 1, Eschatology. Let's talk about it. So, like I was saying, this next four-part series is going to be based off of my big thesis paper. So I want to just take a little bit of time at the very beginning of this series to go through what I'm talking about in my thesis, just to give you a brief overview. So essentially, my thesis paper is a 15,000-word paper that is focused on seeing how the theological discourse of eschatology and the theological discourse of eco-theology are able to be used in tandem to create some sort of lens that helps us to form a more conscious way in which we live in the world, particularly as we think through how to be sustainable with our purchases, be sustainable with our actions as climate change continues to get worse and worse in the world around us. Um, And this is a very multi-leveled, complicated problem that the world faces. And there's not necessarily an easy answer. There's not necessarily, oh, one, one size fits all for this answer. But this Paper is really aimed at helping us to frame that problem, frame the discussion in a sort of theological light. As someone who went to seminary, as someone who has grown up in the Christian household, theology is still something that's still very important to me. Um, But this theology is not necessarily something that just resides in the household of Christianity. Um, essentially what I'm talking about when I talk about eschatology, and we'll get into it in this episode, is eschatology is a narrative of hope, how we frame our lives in this vision of hope for the present and hope for the future. Eco theology, alternatively, is the study of how we care for creation, how we care for the planet. Um, and then tying those two together, that vision of hope and that 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 study of how we care for the planet, then correlates into how we view, Ourselves, what our place is in this world, and also how we go about living in this world, how we frame our purchases, how we frame the way that we interact with ourselves and our communities and our world. All that kind of stuff flows out of this vision of hope, and it also flows out of this um, understanding of how we care for creation. And that, in and of itself, when you frame it as this is a vision of hope and this is how we care for the planet, that's not necessarily Christian terminology, right? Um, so that's essentially what my thesis is talking about. Um, for the sake of my thesis and the the paper that I wrote, I will be sticking to that term of eschatology. Um, but essentially, what I mean by that is a vision of hope. Now, for many eschatology, and I wanna I wanna get into Why I refer to eschatology as a vision for future hope, because for many Christians, when you talk about eschatology, eschatology, when you break out up that word in its original Greek, actually means study of the end times. Um, So a lot of people think of revelation, they think of being raptured to heaven, they think of hellfire and brimstone, they think of the mark of the beast, they think of the lake of fire, people going to hell to burn for eternity, the righteous few being saved, all this kind of stuff, when in reality, eschatology at its heart, while, yes, focused on the end times, in Christian theology, the end times or the end point of history is always, always, always the restoration of God's beloved community. Um, So, for instance, one of the most popular Bible texts or biblical texts that people point to in terms of eschatology is Revelation. In Revelation, while... You know, there's a lot of different stuff going on in Revelation. This is by no means a a very in-depth parsing of everything that's going on in Revelation. Revelation at its heart is talking about God and the world's relationship being restored. Um, It talks about the city of Jerusalem, this new city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven and being in and of the earth. It talks about humanity coming into this city that's bathed in light, that's flowing with milk and honey, whose doors are always open. There's a river of life flowing through it. God is present with and throughout humanity, and it's very easy to be seen and all this kind of stuff. And yes, like I said, there's a lot of other stuff going on in Revelation, but at the heart, this text, this apocalyptic text is talking about a hope for a restored humanity, a unified humanity, a harmonious humanity that is united in the same shared spirit of God or spirit of love or source or whatever you want to call it. Another really important biblical text that talks about eschatology are the Israelite and Jewish prophets from the Hebrew Bible. When they were speaking of an age when the people of Israel would one day return to Jerusalem while they were in exile. So you have... These prophets who are seeing the Jewish people in exile in Babylon, and they're saying there will come a day when Jerusalem will be rebuilt. You will be unified with God once more. You will be unified with the land once more. You will no longer be slaves. You will be free. You will be liberated, and you will have life everlasting. This eschatological lens, at least as we see it through the Bible, is not necessarily ultimately hinged upon the righteous few earning their, their wings, so to speak. But really, it's rooted in restoration. It's rooted in reunion. It's rooted in harmony. It's rooted in close relationship with God or source or spirit. It's rooted in close relationship with the land around you. Like I was saying in Revelation, the city of God literally comes down to earth. Um, It is no longer this separate thing, but it's actually completely and totally unified with the land, with the soil, with the earth. And that is what eschatology at its heart is a discourse on. It's a discourse on the future hope of restoration, the future hope of communion, the future hope of unity and harmony, the future hope of this this realization of the divine and the, the human being completely enmeshed with one another. Now, for those of you who have been listening to my podcast since I've started, you'll see how this has really come out in a lot of the different podcasts that I write and produce. A lot of what I talk about is how we all have this spirit within us Um, We all have this shared spirit of love that draws us deeper into communion with ourselves, that draws us into deeper communion with the people around us, that draws us into deeper communion with the planet. That is an eschatological claim. Um, And so at its heart, eschatology is this, this discourse on future hope, this discourse on hope future hope of restoration, of recreation. Um, for many Christian theologians, this, this end point of history or this eschatology, this, this final moment of restoration, because for many theologians, it all happens at one point. There's some sort of cosmic point or some sort of divine intervention which marks the complete restoration of humanity and God. And for many Christian theologians, that that end point is primarily focused upon Jesus. So somewhere in Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and an eventual second coming, um, there's something revealed about the kingdom of heaven that will be fully realized when Jesus returns. So there's something special about what Jesus was doing Um in regards to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that will be fully realized when Jesus comes back as they talk about in the book of Revelation. Um, And I want to pause for a moment. I know I've talked about this in the podcast before, but just just a refresher on what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is. One of the ways that Jesus talks about it is through parables. That's pretty much the only way that Jesus talks about it, is through parables. And two of the ones that really stick out to me are the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast in the bread dough. So Jesus, in two occasions, says that the kingdom of God is both like a mustard seed that you plant into the ground and will eventually grow into an exponentially larger bush or tree um, that creates um, a place of refuge for others, for other organisms, also, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that's mixed into bread dough that eventually exponentially raises the bread and expands the bread, and that bread ends up being nourishment to the soul, to the to the physical needs of others. So the kingdom of God, at least in these two parables, is something that when it's mixed in with the with the world around it so when a seed is planted in the ground it mixes in with the ground and somewhere in that that seed does die that seed disappears that seed is no longer what it used to be but something in that breakdown something in that burying something in that mixing in when it's nurtured when it's when it finds that area of growth, suddenly the seed bursts forth from the ground and creates something that is exponentially larger, that bears fruit. Um, in the ter- in the case of a mustard seed, a mustard seed is a terribly, terribly tiny seed, but when it's full grown, it creates, while not a, a large tree, it creates something that not only bears fruit, but it also creates a space for other creatures to find refuge Similarly, with the yeast, when you mix yeast in with dough, you can't necessarily see where the yeast particles are anymore, but there's a chemical reaction between the yeast and the dough and the air around it. And all of a sudden, this yeast expands the bread dough and it smells fragrant and it creates this beautiful food that is so damn delicious. I love bread. I love bread. Points, if you know what I'm referencing there. Um, so, essentially, what Jesus is saying in these two parables is that the kingdom is something that, when it's mixed in with everything else around it, when it's nurtured, when it's buried, there's exponential growth, and there's flourishing, and there's sustenance not only for the the seed itself, but there's also sustenance for other organisms outside of this seed. Um, so in, in that way, the kingdom of heaven is this reality that we all can have the propensity to live in. The kingdom of heaven is this image of unity. The kingdom of heaven is this image of being in communion with your shared spirit of love that brings you into deeper connection with yourself, that brings you into deeper connection with others, that brings you into deeper connection with God or the cosmos or the world or whatever else that you're needing to be connected with. Because when you're deeply connected with others, it's a lot harder to hate others. It's a lot harder to marginalize others. It's a lot harder to persecute others or oppress others when you are deeply connected with them. It's a lot harder to do harm unto yourself when you're deeply connected with who you are. It's a lot harder to deeply harm the planet around you when you're deeply connected with the soil that you literally stand upon every single day day. And this is what the kingdom of heaven is. It's this It's this reality of love and communion and harmony. It is that vision that you see in the prophets. It is that vision that you see in revelation. So for, for many theologians, this ultimate revelation or this ultimate um, reality of the kingdom of heaven being made complete, being made completely revealed that every single person is living in it. Um, for some theologians, they view that happening in the little literal translation of Revelation. Um, in my opinion, this is not a particularly helpful exercise. Um, in many cases, it involves a lot of really, really bizarre acrobatics in order to make your view fit with the rest of the biblical landscape and all this kind of stuff. Um, But still, that is a common view amongst many Christians. Um, But I'd like to provide a shift in lens in how we view that, quote unquote, second coming of Christ, because... One of the most impactful aspects of Jesus sharing about the kingdom of heaven, one of the things that Jesus says a lot in the Gospels is, the kingdom of heaven is here and the kingdom of heaven is now. Jesus doesn't talk about the kingdom of heaven as, well, this is going to be something that eventually comes and you'll only get to see snippets of it. Jesus is saying, no, it's here now. It's ready for you to participate in now. Um, So for me, I view that as the kingdom of heaven, this, this ultimate union, harmony, restoration, whatever you want to call it, whatever verbiage you want to use, it's something that is present in our reality right now that we need to participate in. Ultimately, this vision of hope, this eschatological hope for humanity, for the recreation of the world, for union with the animals, for union with your neighbors, all this kind of stuff. It's something that's a reality that can be felt and participated in here and now. In this way, this quote-unquote second coming of Christ is actually something that comes through us, through humanity, through the world around us. Because when we When we refuse to be held sway by these narratives that say that you are different than your neighbor, you are different than this person, you are different because you have this degree and not this degree, you're different because you have this income and not this income, you are separate because you grew up here and not here, you're separate because of your gender, you're separate because of your sexuality, you're separate because of your race, you're separate because of your skin color or your culture or your heritage or you're separate, you're separate, you're separate, you're separate. When we live into the kingdom of heaven, we're refusing to live by that narrative. We're refusing to say, yes, we're separate. Instead, we're viewing the whole thing as we are all interconnected by the spirit of love we are all interconnected by this source that is the wellspring of our being. We are all connected. We are all of the same race or species. Um, we are all living on this planet together. We are all co cooperators and caring for the planet around us. There's it's it's a shift in lens that refuses to let what separates us or makes us different keep us from truly connecting with ourselves and with others and with the world around us because that's ultimately the hinge piece I think for me and for um, for my thesis is it's not necessarily about whitewashing the differences between us because that's not a helpful exercise. Um, in many cases that can be harming to say, well, you know, we're all the same people. I mean look at the clash between white lie or not white lives. <laughs> um, Black lives matter and all lives matter. Um, fundamentally, there was a group saying, we have been oppressed for, ages we have been oppressed for generations and we are bringing to light that we are suffering here we are under the boot of the oppressor we are not getting a fair shake um and what all lives matter was doing was whitewashing and saying well well you're saying that only these people matter when all people matter that means what I, What I believe or what I need is just as important, if not more important, than what you need. Um, And that's a problem because that is something that breaks down the very legitimate claims of suffering that people have. Um, That is something that we need to confront in the world around us. Suffering exists. Pain, loss, grief, these things exist and we cannot whitewash over them because when we do that, we lose that connection to that pain and that suffering and grief. And when we lose connection to that pain and suffering and grief, we are no longer able to have the stakes in the, in the process needed to break the cycle to break the cycle of oppression, to break the cycle of injustice. Um, And that's something that we'll be getting into in part three. But ultimately, the kingdom of heaven is saying, not only am I going to declare that these narratives of disconnection are false, I'm going to become even more deeply connected with the pain and the suffering and grief and the joy and the love and the peace and the unity and the 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 breakdowns between communication and everything, everything around us. The To live into the kingdom of heaven is to say, I am going to be de- deeply connected in all of it. And when you live into that sort of kingdom of deep, deep connection, that's when the mustard seed is planted. That's when the yeast is mixed into the dough. That's when growth happens. That's when restoration happens. That's when true change makes its way into the world. And that is when Christ's revelation of the kingdom of heaven is most apparent. And that is what eschatology is all about. It's not necessarily about the book of Revelation and people going to heaven or hell or somewhere in between. Eschatology ultimately is about the realization of that union, of that growth, of that positive change. In the world. And when you view Revelation with a literal lens, when you view it as, well, it's just this end point of history where some people will go to heaven and earn their wings and other people won't, you're missing out on a rich depth and a rich view into what it means to truly be human and to truly be connected with yourself and your communities. In your world, um, along with that living into the kingdom, a byproduct, um, although it's it's very much a crucial aspect of this, but a byproduct of living into the kingdom is the restoration of the beloved community. Now, like I said, some. Some theologians view this differently. So for some theologians, such as Karl Barth, the main focal point of the beloved community is humanity. Um, So the the whole of Christ's work is to restore humanity unto Christ's self. Um, It's all about the sin that needs to be paid for um, and that humanity is the one that's being redeemed in this eschatological lens. Um, For other theologians such as James Cone, again, it's focused on the human community, but particularly upon the oppressed and downtrodden people of the world. Um, So for people like Cone, eschatology is realized through the voice and the experience of the oppressed and the downtrodden and the poor and the weak and the widow and the orphan. Again, a very valid way of viewing future hope and one that I would claim is desperately desperately needed um in the world around us because if there's anyone that benefits from a narrative of hope most it's the ones who are seemingly stuck in this endless cycle of injustice and hopelessness um so that is absolutely a very valid view way of viewing it and i mean obviously humanity is something that we should absolutely care about i care about other humans as well um There's also an eschatological lens, and this is where it really connects with eco-theology and the rest of my thesis in terms of creation care, Um, but still for some other theologians, for people like Jürgen Moltmann, who's a German theologian, or Elizabeth Johnson, who's a more modern um, Catholic feminist theologian. Uh, this future hope or this eschatology encompasses more than just humanity. It encompasses more than just the oppressed people of the world, but it encompasses all created things, including non-human creation. Um, it's cosmic in scope. It's something that is happening throughout all of history. It's something that's saying this all, all of it matters. All of it is being restored. All of it is being redeemed. All of it is being made new. All of it matters, and all of it should be something that you should be striving to be connected to. Um, Throughout all of history, throughout all of it, God has been at work in restoring all things unto God's self, including non-human creation, including the planet. Um, What this is saying is that to live into the kingdom of heaven, to live into this eschatological hope that I'm talking about. It's more than just being in connection with yourself. It's more than just being in connection with the pain and grief and suffering of the oppressed peoples of the world. Yes. Very, very important things, but it's also about being in deep, deep connection with the soil, with the planet, with the resources, with the animals, with the sky, with the sea. Um, So one of the ways that Jürgen Moltmann and Elizabeth Johnson talk about this is very similar to uh, the way that C.S. Lewis talks about it. So if you, like me, read the Chronicles of Narnia growing up, um, you'll be familiar with the end of The Last Battle, which is the seventh book in the series, where Aslan and his followers are they've gone through the door onto the other side into the quote-unquote afterlife and it's like they're walking through this new Narnia but it's the same as the old Narnia but it's more real it's it's so similar but it's more vibrant it's more real it's I the way that he describes it is it's almost as if the old Narnia, this thing that I thought was reality, was just a mere veil or a mere shadow of the real Narnia which I'm in now. Um, that would be a similar view to that of Moltmann or Elizabeth Johnson, who claimed that through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we are moving into this more unified, reality of the earth being a valid and a valid and much needed member of the beloved community. And I think at least for me I was introduced to theology not necessarily through people like Moltmann or Elizabeth Johnson. Yes, I know who they are. Yes, I've studied them since going off to seminary and during my time in undergrad. But C.S. Lewis was actually the person who introduced me to theology through things like um, the Narnia series or through things like um, The Great Divorce, which is an absolutely wonderful book. Um, But I think this is why someone like C.S. Lewis stood out to me so early on in my spiritual awakening. It's because C.S. Lewis was the first one who I saw depicting a world brimming with hope, Rather than a world brimming with despair and judgment, um, the same would be have to be with musical artists such as Josh Garrels, um, who sings a lot about creation being restored—not just human creation, but all of creation. Um, you know, we as a species, as humans, are clamoring for some sort of vision of hope, some sort of vision of it's going to get better. There's something else, something new, something better, something more real just around the bend. We are desperate for some sort of vision of hope. And Moltmann and Johnson and C.S. Lewis and Josh Garrels and so many other people expand that hope to also include the rest of non-human creation. Restoration is not just for me. It's not just for you, but it's for your pet dog. It's for your pet goldfish. It's for your garden that you've toiled and worked so hard to cultivate. It's for the quiet beach where you found solace or peace. It's for the mountains where you breathe more deeply than you ever could have. It's for the forests. It's for the lakes. It's for the birds of the sky. It's for the fish of the sea. It's for the soil. It's for everything. Because for Folks, that's what eschatology is at its best. Eschatology and Christianity, I would say, at its worst, um, is a worldview. It's a religion. It's an institution that says, ultimately, we're leaving this planet anyway, so why take care of it? For many people who view... um, revelation, literally, they say, oh, we're being raptured away from the planet. We're going to heaven. This world behind is going to be destroyed. So why should we take care of it? Sure. Pump tons of oil out of the planet. Dump it all back into the ocean. Throw out all your trash so that animals choke on it and die. Do all this despicable... Despicable stuff, pump all that CO2 up into the atmosphere by burning all this coal and by driving my car needlessly and all this other stuff. Because who cares? We're leaving anyway. For some people, they may even view this as speeding Christ's second coming and speeding their way to heaven. Um, Ultimately... That's a destructive worldview. That's a destructive institution. That's a destructive religion. And personally, I don't want any part of that because I believe in an eschatology, in in a Christianity that when at its best brings all of creation into deeper communion and connection with themselves and with all that is swirling around them. And that is a terribly important aspect of my thesis of the paper that I've written. It's a terribly important aspect of this podcast that I've been working on for the last year to year and a half. Um, You know, a lot of the work that I do, it's all about being in communion with ourselves, being in connection with ourselves and with others and with creation, with nature, with the cosmos. And that's what the wild, messy, and infinite, nature of love is all about that's what this podcast is all about that's what this paper is all about so I want to leave you with this is just a list that I came up with um One of the things that I want to talk about is, so what does eschatology look like in the world? What does living into the kingdom of heaven look like in the world? What does it look like to live into this vision of hope? Because it's one thing to be able to talk about all these wonderful ideas that make us all warm and fuzzy, but it's it's another thing to realize them in the world around us and participate in that realization as it continues to brim with hope and love. And life. So, some of the ways that eschatology takes forms in the world around us first off, first that comes to mind social justice movements. Um, Things like Black Lives Matter, things like the Women's March, things like the U.S. Women's National Team fighting for equal pay. That is eschatology. That is living into a hope filled narrative of union and restoration of and the abolishment of injustice. Um, Another one, caring for the poor and the widow in your communities. Um, One of the things that I absolutely loved about my previous job was the church that I worked at had a food pantry that operated out of their church every single Tuesday evening. Even to this day, in the midst of quarantine, in the midst of social distancing, that food pantry is still operating. That is a hope-filled narrative that is actively working towards feeding the community around them. Um, Another one, doing the interior work to discover who you truly are. Coming into deep connection with yourself. That is so terribly important. Um, I know for me, and probably a lot of others like me, a lot of what we do, a lot of the way that we view the world starts with the self, starts with me. Um, So if I'm not hopeful about where I'm headed or who I am, if I don't know who I am, if I don't know how to live in deep connection with who I am at my deepest point, how am I expected to be able to live in connection with the people around me or with the world around me? If it's not right at the deepest foundational levels for you, for you, how is it going to be able to build be built on top of that as you expand into the communities and the world around you. So doing the interior work to help you discover who you truly are, to work through your pain, to work through your grief, and to come into connection with that, witness to it, and work through it. That is a vital, vital action that we all must take. Um, Another one, similar to caring for the poor and the widow that I was talking about, volunteering at a local food drive. Food drives are still happening folks. Um, whether you're volunteering your time or volunteering resources so that these food pantries and these food drives continue working, that is eschatology. That is living into a vision of hope. Um, supporting healthcare workers in this pandemic, um, that's a, an absolutely um, absolutely vital practice of living eschatologically. Um, for instance, my favorite favorite soccer team is Chelsea Football Club and the owner of Chelsea Football Club say what you want about him say what you want about sports say what you want about the outrageous amount of money that athletes make we could talk about that another time they are using Chelsea is using its resources to support healthcare workers so they actually have a hotel that's not too far away from a hospital in London and they've actually given those rooms to healthcare workers to use as a place of rest in between shifts because they need space where they can rest and recuperate um, because they are giving so, so much to care for the most vulnerable, to care for the people who are getting ill, the people who are getting sick. They are continuing to do their work on the front line. So supporting healthcare workers is a vital aspect of eschatology. Um Walking through the valley of the shadow of death with someone, walking with someone through their own grief, with through their own pain, through their own loss, whatever that might look like. Um, another one, pursuing your passions and dreams. Not everything about being in connection with yourself is necessarily working through all the tough stuff. When you're in deep connection with yourself and with your communities and your with your world, there's also deep, vast pools of joy to be splashed around in, basically. Um, So finding the space where you can pursue your passions and your dreams, that is eschatology at work. Um, Spending time with family and loved ones, being in connection with other people, creating, um, working towards making the world a better place, um, essentially being the change in the world that you want to see. I know that's a very (laughs) common quote to see. But that's essentially what living eschatologically means. That's what participating in the kingdom of heaven means. It means being the change that you ultimately want to see, being the vessel of hope for the divine to come in and to restore people's hope, to restore people's lives, to restore people's community and connection with themselves and with the communities around them and with the world. That's what eschatology is. But friends, that is only part one. I'll see you next week for part two, where we will be talking about eco-theology and creation care. Until then, peace and love, y'all.